Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. At Drilling Deep, we drill deep into the world of oil and diesel because that is my specialty. And we also drill deep into the issues of the day with our weekly guest this week. That's Jack Rabicki of CLA. That's an advisory and accounting firm, an advisory and consulting firm, 6,000 people strong. Jack has been on the front lines working with clients who are going through the process of getting federal funds under the CARES Act to help companies stay alive, to help workers stay employed. And that CARES Act includes the Payment Protection Plan, the PPP, which has been a lifeline for a lot of smaller trucking companies. Jack's going to be here in a couple of minutes to talk about that. But first, as we usually do, we're going to talk about diesel. It seems almost pointless to talk about the price of diesel. It's moving so fast that by the time you hear this, it will have changed 10 times from when I first recorded it, and it might have changed another 10 times since the podcast actually became available. So we do want to note a few numbers, though. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about Truck Stops of America. They had come out sometime in March with a statement that their diesel demand was elevated, quote unquote. That was the term they used. That was in that first crazy rush of stores being emptied, the frenetic efforts to restock them. And I think we all know, anybody in the trucking business knows that that's over. The National Outbound Tender Volume Index in Sonar, the OTVI, is down about 47% from its peak. And now you're seeing that in diesel demand. It is showing up in diesel demand. The Weekly Energy Energy Information Administration statistics that came out this past week were really, really staggering. There's a category in there called product supplied, which is basically a proxy for demand. This week, it showed demand for all distillates. Now, distillates include diesel, includes jet fuel, and includes heating oil, and includes a smaller category called kerosene, but it's mostly diesel. Anyway, that number this week was 2.75 million barrels per day. A month ago, it was 4 million barrels a day. The full year average for 2019 was a little over 4 million barrels a day. And last week was about 1.25 million barrels a day under that 2019 average. Just think about that. The last time it got this low was April 1999. You know, I kind of look back at some records to try to figure out was there something going on back then? Uh, The fact is the economy was very strong. This is all U.S. numbers, of course. So I'm not really sure why which makes me think like that was a kind of a one-off number uh, where they just kind of got it wrong in their models. But the last time that uh, demand in the U.S. for diesel posted two consecutive weeks, less than 3 million barrels a day was 1995. We didn't do that. We haven't done that yet. We just had the one week. But I think you've got to think when you look around that is a pretty good shot at doing that next week, being under 3 million barrels a day. So this is going to be really historic it's going to be the first time in you know, 25 years that we've been under 3 million barrels a day of demand in the U.S. two weeks running. So meanwhile, refiners are making plenty of the stuff. They produced more than 4.9 million barrels a day of all distillates last week. I'm not going to give you too many numbers here. I know they get confusing when you're listening to a podcast. Most of that production was in the form of ultra-low sulfur diesel. These are very high numbers in any market, much less this one. And they've done that, the refiners have done that because the gasoline market is even worse. So refiners are cutting runs overall, and what they're left with, what they are producing, they're making more diesel as a percentage of their output than they've ever done. The historical records are they've never made this much diesel compared to gasoline. And the records go back, one stream that I was looking at goes back to 1992. As a result, 
you're starting to see the reaction. So not only did U.S. inventories of ULSD rise a steep 5 million barrels a day this week, but prices are sliding too. The closing price on the CME's ULSD contract Wednesday was near 91 cents a gallon. That's the lowest level since April 2004. And yes, that retail price you're paying at the pump hasn't fallen anywhere near that much. We have a data series in Sonar called Fuels.USA. It's the spread between retail and wholesale diesel, and it's up at very high numbers. Not the highest we've ever recorded, but it's getting up there. This can continue. Refiners, for a few weeks, they were banking on diesel saving them, but quite frankly, that's pretty much over. Demand for diesel has just created way too much. Spot market diesel prices are reacting now to that reality, and soon you're going to have to see retail do it as well. The wholesale price of diesel nationally, it's in our uh, data series in Sonar called ULSDR.USA. That number is down about $1.04 per gallon at the rack. The wholesale wrap point is known as the rack since January 1st. But the EIA price, the one that is close to what people are paying and is also the one that's used for fuel surcharges, that's only down about 58 cents. That was uh, posted this week, last Monday, at just over 250 a gallon. It's probably never going to catch up with the full decline in uh, wholesale prices, but I think we can note that what is like, which one of those is more likely to fall a little faster from this point on? Is it going to be wholesale or is it going to be uh, retail? Retail hasn't come even close to tracking wholesale, so I think you've got to say diesel. Diesel at the pump is overpriced, and it's likely to head it lower still, but maybe by a lot. Uh, We've done a lot of reporting here at Freightways on the CARES Act, which is the big federal program designed to give a variety of aid to companies and their workers who are being impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. And let's face it, that's pretty much just everybody. Uh, Our guest today is Jack Rabicki. He is the Managing Principal of Industry for CLA, also known as Clifton Larson Allen. It's a wide-ranging accounting, advisory, and consulting firm. Um, I found Jack on the internet. I was working on a story about the PPP program. PPP is uh, the Payroll Protection Program, and I saw some analysis he did, and I thought, well, I've got to talk to this guy. So we had a, a good back and forth, and I used him in a story this week on Freightways. So, Jack, you've been watching the development of the CARES program and how it's been in, how it's implemented closely. You're here to talk to us today. Let me just tell you a little background story. I, I took the story I wrote the main thrust of which was that the PPP program was was mostly going well. And I put it up on two trucking-related Facebook groups, on uh, tr- two trucking-related Facebook groups. And the response on one of them was, yeah, this is great. I got my money. I got my money. And the other one was, this is a lot of baloney. I haven't seen anything. So <laughs> the dichotomy between the two was, uh, was pretty uh, stunning. But you've been watching it pretty closely. And in our back and forth, you were fairly positive on how it's gone so far. Yeah. Good morning, John. Um, you know, the, the the program itself, when you think about it, I mean, the, the CARES Act just got signed into law on March 27th. And for something to put a $350 billion program into function within literally one week, I mean, people were accepting applications on April 3rd. Um, for the federal government to do that, that's that's pretty darn impressive. Um, and, you know, as of Monday, the SBA just uh, released some information through the end of the day on Monday, the SBA had approved nearly $250 billion worth of loan requests, right? So nearly 70% of the 
allocated funds had already been, you know, applications had been submitted, approved by the banks, submitted to the SBA, and the SBA had approved them back to the banks for funding. So to put something like that in place in, in you know, now we're a little over two weeks out um, is, is pretty impressive. So I think everybody needs to give the government in this place a, a little grace because it's, it's been a Herculean feat on the SBA's behalf. When you're hearing about companies being denied, what is there kind of a, a, a few major reasons why they're being denied? Yeah, there, there are a couple. Um, the affiliate rules out there are probably the biggest area that are catching people up. Um, so if you're owned by another entity that controls you and then they have other businesses that they control, when you look at whether or not you meet the 500 employee test, you have to consider all of those businesses together. And so a lot of times, you know, particularly private equity and venture capital backed companies, there were some issues that uh, that people were getting tripped up because they were going over the, the thresholds. Um, and there are some ineligible businesses out there as well. Um, so the SBA has a list of companies that are ineligible to participate in um, programs like this. There, there's seven A programs. And, and so things like I work a lot in real estate, uh, things like real estate developers uh, and home builders, which are considered to be speculative industries, um, those are not generally allowed to participate in a program like this. All right. Do you see any particular issues for trucking in this? Um, you, you mentioned the affiliates. I was on a webinar about a week and a half ago that was a 90-minute webinar uh, about the, the PPP program and the CARES Act in general. And I'd say they probably spent 50% of their time talking about the ambiguities in the uh, the definition of affiliates. But in general, how do you think this is going to be working for trucking from what you've heard so far? Yeah, Josh Anger, uh, our transportation and logistics leader, and I were talking earlier today. And, you know, I think a couple things, you know, we are not seeing um, very many of our trucking companies get denied just on the outright, you know, because they're, you know, if they're below the 500 people. Um, the other thing is that, you know, as you know, many of uh, the folks that are involved in the trucking business are independent contractors um, and not necessarily employees of the trucking companies. And so those folks also have the ability to apply on their own for, um, for you know, this loan program. And so, you know, from, from our perspective, it seems to be working pretty good in meeting the needs of the, of the transportation community at large right now. Uh, and the primary thing that people are supposed to do with this money is keep people on the payroll, correct? Yeah, that is correct. I mean, the uh, you know there are, there was a new guideline that was put in place in the interim final rule that came out from the SBA that was not in the original CARES Act. Uh, that seventy five percent of the uh, proceeds from the loan need to be spent on payroll costs in order for um, a portion of the loan to be forgiven. If you don't spend the 75%, you're not going to not have anything forgiven, but let's say you only spend 70%, the 5% shortfall will not be subject to forgiveness. All right. So talk about the forgiveness provisions in this, because I'm a little bit unclear on them. So let's say you use up all your money uh, between now and whenever, and you follow the terms of the, the act. What do you owe back to the government? So if, um, you know, there's really kind of a four-part test, right? So I mentioned the 75% needs to be spent on payroll. 
Um, and the inverse of that is only 25% can be spent on non-payroll related uh, allowable expenses. So that, you know, if, you're, if you fall um, outside of those boundaries, that number doesn't get forgiven. Um, you obviously have to spend all the money you've requested too. That's another gate that's out there. But the two main gates that are out there that could cause people to uh, not get the entire amount forgiven are an employee retention um, hurdle and then uh, are you paying them a comparable wage hurdle, right? So the employee retention is, is pretty simple. You look at your full-time equivalents during the eight-week period after you get the loan proceeds and you compare that to your full-time equivalents in a pre-COVID period. And there's one of two that are available to you. But if you have 100 employees now and you used to have 200 employees, basically um, it would say that only 50% of the loan is going to be subject to forgiveness. And then the, the payroll equivalency test is really, um, they're looking for people to still pay their employees at least 75% of what they made before the pre-COVID period. So they're acknowledging that we may reduce pay a little bit um, from before, but we still want you to be paying people a, a decent wage. And so to the extent that you reduce their pay by more than 25%, uh, for those folks that make less than $100,000, then that would also be a, a portion of the loan that would not be forgiven. Now, you and I uh, had a, some back and forth in email, and you were talking about trucking specifically. You mentioned your colleague earlier um, that this is supposed to be for companies that are in distress. And you mentioned the companies, the trucking companies that were not in distress, uh, who were hauling toilet paper and paper towels and all the things needed to restock the shelves. But that's kind of done. I think anybody in the trucking industry would tell you that that was a sugar high that didn't really last. But generally, if a company somehow manages to find itself doing extremely well as a result of the crisis, um, hard to see how that can happen, but some can. What is their, uh, what's the impact on PPP for them? Yeah. So, you know, as, as I mentioned in the, the back and forth we had, you know, if, if a company has not been negatively impacted currently and for the foreseeable future, uh, doesn't feel like there's going to be a negative impact, then this program really isn't for them. It is meant to help people that feel like there's some uncertainty about the future of their organization. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that you have to be feeling that uncertainty right now, right? And so, you know, we were talking that some folks might be doing very well right now, even working above capacity currently, but you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the if we have to really kind of arrest the spread of the virus by actually shutting everything down for a two-week period, including some of the things that are currently deemed essential, that could obviously have a negative impact on everybody, even if you're doing well right now. I think what we're telling our clients is it's very important to consider whether you have that need either currently or potentially in the future and then what we would recommend is that you document that contemporaneously with your application, right? You don't want to have somebody come back and challenge you later on. And even if things go well and all those negative eventualities don't happen, at least you've had, you were making a good faith effort and you, you, uh, you know, you, you complied with the spirit of the act when you made the application that way. 
You mentioned independent contractors before. That was, uh, again, I mentioned some webinars I'd been on talking about PPP and extensive discussion, but pretty much everybody in consensus that your payroll base does not include payments to independent owner-operator truck drivers. Uh, just in general, though, sole proprietors are eligible for PPP protection, but, you know, it's a lot to apply and, you know, you don't have anybody else. It's not like you can tell your accounting department and your legal department to take care of it because you're, you're the accounting department and you're the legal department. Do you see sole proprietors applying for this and uh, are some of them maybe just a little bit scared to go into the process? I won't say scared, but a little bit nervous and apprehensive. Yeah, that, they definitely are. Um, fortunately, the SBA just came out with some guidance yesterday uh, related to self-employed individ- individuals, which you know also applies to independent contractors, and took some of the uncertainty out of what the application process looks like, what you should and shouldn't be applying for, and that kind of thing. And you know, independent contractors and self-employed individuals were not allowed to apply for the program right out of the gate. They were delayed until April 10th, uh, and part of it was so the SBA could come up with their guidance here. But they, they, they really did a good job. So if you're self-employed and you have no other employees, you really base your application on your net earnings from last year, and all of these things are always subject to a $100,000 cap. So if you're self-employed and you made over 100000 in net earnings last year, you would basically be able to apply for a $21,000 loan, give or take. And, uh, and it, uh, it looks like about 15000 of that loan would be forgiven. Uh, and so you'd have to service basically a $6,000 loan, uh, which worst things could happen, right? It's a $6,000 loan that uh, amortizes over two years with 1% interest. So it does give you a little bit to you know, help pay the bills and and your working capital needs as well. Well, given last year's trucking rates, I think any trucker who made $100,000 is probably dead from exhaustion. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, there's a lot of alphabet soup out there. We talk PPP, we talk CARES. Uh, There's another program out there, EIDL, which I'm finding is not really getting a lot of applause. It's been around, it's not new, but it has been expanded somewhat. Can you give a quick summary of EIDL and whether you think it has any value? Yeah, there's there's a lot of developments around the EIDL program and I'll try to share a few of them with you. So the EIDL is the uh, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program and it, and it is a program that's been around and has been utilized by companies following a lot of natural disasters. Uh, the entire country is determined to be a disaster zone right now. And so as a result of that, anybody can apply for an EIDL loan. Um, the EIDL process really does uh, relate to your economic injury, though. And while you can use it, uh, the loan proceeds for a broader um, use of uh, allowable uses than the PPP, um, it, you really don't know how much you're going to get, right? You, you have to submit your financial information to the SBA. The SBA tries to determine what they need to give you in order to help you keep going, and that becomes the loan amount. Now, there is a $10,000 emergency grant that you can get when you apply, Um, but I will tell you that we've had people apply uh, in late March that have not yet heard from the SBA, uh, and they say they're going to get back with you within seven to 10 days and give you that $10,000 grant within three days of approving approving your eligibility for the application. And those those things are just not happening. Um, we've heard two significant recent developments. Uh, one is that we're hearing that emergency grant 
uh, is now going to be a staggered number. So instead of just being $10,000, it's going to be based on the number of employees you have up to a $10,000 cap. So for instance, if you're an independent contractor and maybe you have two other folks that, that drive with you, and so you would only get a $3,000 emergency grant. Um, the good part is that doesn't have to be paid back, but um, the bad part is it's taking a long time. The other yeah, thing so we've heard... Oh, go, no, okay, I, just, I, I want to move on a little bit because we're running a little bit short on time. Well, thanks for that. Clearly, you know, EIDL doesn't seem to be as uh, responsive so far as the PPP. But uh, let me ask you just in general, you, you've got a lot of clients. Um, I guess your specialty is not trucking, but you've got trucking uh, elsewhere. How good is this program? I mean, how, how much is it saving American jobs? Do you feel that I mean, you, you talked about the speed at which this was done? You don't, normally don't see government act that fast. Uh, there's talk about another $250 billion in funding for this coming down the road. Um, how confident are you that this is a significant step to get America back up on its feet? Yeah, you know, you wonder if if people are doing what uh, the government intended, right? Because what it really wanted to do was rather than having people go and stay on unemployment, they wanted to, them to be employed back through their original employers and, uh, you know, position them to recover on the back end. Obviously, the time period for recovery seems to be stretching out. No one knows what that looks like. And a lot of people are making the decision not to rehire everybody because of the expanded unemployment benefits. So while I think it, in some industries it is helping and is causing people to make determinations to retain people or keep their salaries at current levels when they might have otherwise reduced them, I'm not sure that it's having the, the broad-based impact that uh, that was hoped. And, and I think we're seeing that in the growing unemployment rates that are out there that that really haven't been uh, significantly impacted by this program yet. Now, let's point out, though, that if, if a company has let somebody go, they can then bring them back under the PPP provisions, correct? Yeah, they can, and it won't count against them for that forgiveness calculation that we talked about earlier. Okay, so I, the final question, there, if there's going to be a next phase and the next phase discussion is going on in – actually, it's not going on in Washington since nobody's actually in Washington, <laughs> but it's going on. Um, how would you change phase two? Yeah, I, I do think that um, you know if they really are trying to incentivize folks to hire people back, I would, I would actually make that a, a broader, bigger piece and, and a, a more of a hammer as part of the program. And rather than just say – if you don't uh, utilize this for payroll costs, it converts to a loan um, that you should have to refund the refund the amount up to that 75% that they were targeting. I know that's not um, you know what a lot of people want to hear on this because they like the fact that this can essentially convert to a low interest working capital loan for two years. But again, if the spirit of the program is to keep people employed, then that's what they should do. However, if that's not the spirit and really what they're trying to do is just keep businesses afloat, then let's quit disguising it and just let people use this as working capital, regardless of whether they use it on the employees. And then that way, that'll relieve a lot of angst that that a number of the business owners that we work with have about applying for this program. Jack, I want to thank you. Jack Rabicki, the Managing Principal of Industry for CLA, talking here about the PPP program, the provisions of the CARES Act, and all of the programs that have been 
taken on by the federal government uh, to try to turn around the economy or at least keep it from sinking further? I, I guess we'll be the, the economic historians will be looking back at this period for a long time to come, won't they, Jack? I think they will. It's it's uh, unprecedented. Yeah. Anyway, thank for joining us and thank all of you for joining us here today on Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from FreightWaves. You can find us all through Apple Podcasts, really uh, through FreightWaves.com or any of the major platforms in which you can get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Kingston. Join us again.